Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat-Paz. On each episode of our show, we'll speak with top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today we talk to John Prosnitz, professor at the College of Chemistry of the University of California, Berkeley, and the editor of the Annual Review of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. Professor John Prosnitz joined Berkeley's faculty in 1955 and went on to develop molecular thermodynamics, which aims at understanding the way molecules interact in fluids and solids in order to predict their behavior on a larger scale. His research helped render the chemical industry safer, more efficient, and more environmentally sound, especially the refining of crude oil and the production of polymers. Later, he turned his attention to biotechnology. Professor John Prosnitz is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, as well as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2003, he won the United States' highest scientific honor, the National Medal of Science. Hello and welcome to our show, Professor John Prosnitz. Hello. So let's start uh, at the beginning. Um, you received your PhD from Princeton in 1955, and immediately thereafter you joined the school where you teach today. What was it about Berkeley? Well, Berkeley was then known as it is today as one of the leading universities in the world. And at that time, chemical engineering at Berkeley was very young. It was uh, only a few years old. And I saw a tremendous opportunity to uh, be in on the ground floor, so to speak, uh, in uh, making a new department. That was one reason. Another reason is that uh, there was a professor of chemistry here called Joel Hildebrand. And uh, I had read his writings and his books, and I was very much impressed by him. He was already quite elderly at the time. He was already retired when I came, but still remarkably active. But uh, he looked into phenomena that were of particular interest to me. Uh, he wrote a book called Solubility, which I studied carefully. Uh, talks about uh, how different substances mix or do not mix like water and oil don't mix, but water and vinegar do. Now, why is that? Uh, what is it about the intermolecular forces that brings that about? And uh, we know water boils at 100 degrees centigrade and makes a vapor, and other fluids uh, boil at different temperatures to make a vapor. Now, why, why is that? So I, I was interested in uh, learning something about the macroscopic large-scale properties of materials in terms of the intermolecular interactions that are responsible for them. Uh, I should point out that this is a very important field in chemical engineering. In chemical engineering, we're always separating mixtures. Uh, nature does not give us pure substances. Nature gives us mixtures. The uh, best example is air. Uh, air is mostly oxygen and nitrogen with a few other things. And so if you want the oxygen uh, from air, you have to make a separation process. You have to know something about the properties uh, of oxygen and nitrogen when mixed. Another well-known example is oil. The oil you get out of the ground is quite useless as such. You have to make separations. You have to take the light ends, uh, and you get natural gas, which we use to heat our homes. And then the middle, the middle part, uh, intermediate part we use for gasoline, and the very heavy materials we use as a tar on, the, on our roads. So a separation is, uh, is the bread and butter, you might say, of chemical engineering. And so uh, 
the kind of work that Professor Hildebrand was doing was of much interest to me. So you went on to develop molecular thermodynamics. Is it exactly what you just described? Yes, it's exactly what I described. The idea is that uh, if you know something about how two molecules interact, uh, then uh, with suitable assumptions and various mathematical techniques, you can then explain how a very, very large number of molecules behaves. How did you decide to go into that um, while you were still studying at Princeton and, and Cornell? What was it about chemical engineering that, that attracted you? Well, what attracted me then is what attracts me now. It's an opportunity to uh, use science and uh, do something useful with it. And uh, that's exactly what I've been doing, and that's what my colleagues here in chemical engineering do also. Uh, we don't uh, try to uh, advance science as such. We try to understand it. We have here at Berkeley all sorts of outstanding scientists. And uh, what I try to do is to listen to what they have to say. I can't compete with them. They are people of, uh, uh, with different training that I don't have. But I can understand what they do. And then I can ask myself, all right, I have this understanding now. How can I put that to use? And that is exactly what molecular thermodynamics does. It became extremely useful, as, as we said um, earlier. It was, it was widely used in um, the chemical industry, refining uh, polymers, et cetera. You've had an extremely prolific career developing this field, and you went on to receive the National Medal of Science. What, what is your proudest achievement? Well, let me just make a, a very minor correction. You said it was used in industry. I'm happy to say it is used. It's, it's not yes. a matter of the past. Uh, it's used a lot uh, all over the world when people design a chemical plant to make some sort of a product or they design a refinery. Some of the things that we've done here at Berkeley turn out to be very useful. My proudest achievement, I think I can give the usual answer that professors tend to give, my proudest achievement is students. I've enjoyed very much uh, working with students, uh, influencing them. Hopefully the influence I've had on them has been beneficial. I think it has in most cases. And uh, the greatest reward that uh, someone like me gets is the success of the students. Uh, there isn't any one thing in my uh, scientific career that I can point to that is more satisfying than any other. I mean, they all are satisfying. But the contact with young people and the uh, opportunity to influence them beneficially, that, that has been uh, a, major, a major reward for me. There's one other little answer that I might give, which is perhaps a little strange, but I think it's also true. We had a classroom in Gilman Hall, where my office is, and many of our classes were conducted in that room. It's not very large. And so uh, when, uh, whenever it was a rainy day, the students would come in with their raincoats and umbrellas and their galoshes, and it was a terrible mess because the room was not very large. They didn't know what to do with all this rain gear. So I decided what we obviously need is some hooks on the wall where they can hang things up. And I tried for quite a while to get the administration uh, interested in doing this, and I uh, found out, as I now know, that I got the usual runaround. No one wanted to do this. It was somebody else's job, and there was no money. And so the usual excuses, the bureaucracy here, which is, I think, my biggest enemy on this campus, is the bureaucracy. 
So uh, one weekend, I got a few of my graduate students together. We went to the hardware store. We bought hooks. We got some nails and hammers, and we put them up on the wall. And uh, after that, when it rained, the students had, uh, had an opportunity to get rid of their rain gear. So in a way, that is my proudest achievement. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you said that this, this hall um, doesn't exist anymore. This classroom doesn't exist anymore. No. How has the department evolved um, since you arrived here at Berkeley? How has everything evolved? Because there were schools at the time where uh, chemical engineers and chemists were very, very different. Uh, they sometimes uh, didn't communicate. So how was it when you got here? Well, that was one of the great attractions. The chemical engineering department, actually it wasn't a department at that time, it was only a division, was part of chemistry. And that is relatively rare. In most universities, chemical engineering is part of the College of Engineering. And as always in life, there are advantages and disadvantages, but in this case, the advantages being associated with chemistry are very large indeed. We had then still have an outstanding chemistry department, like Professor Hildebrand, whom I just mentioned. And uh, so there was a real opportunity for, not just for me, but for all my colleagues in the department to get expert advice on uh, chemical matters. And that has played a huge role in the development of the department. We, uh, uh, we stress molecules. What is the molecule doing? That's always the question. What are, what are the molecules doing and how can we get them to do something else that we prefer? Uh, that is the central theme, which all my colleagues uh, have that as their central theme. And that's not uh, necessarily uh, typical of chemical engineering departments. In many other chemical engineering departments, they're much more concerned with everyday practical things. And uh, we here don't stress the everyday practical. We stress the future practical. And that's what you continue to do. That's what we've been doing all along. And we tend to select faculty who have that sort of viewpoint and philosophy. So uh, in the department, we have many uh, research projects that are conducted together with, uh, with chemistry professors. How did you decide to turn um, your attention to the biomolecular world? Well, that's a national trend. Bio is king now. Every, you, you see the letters B-I-O all over the place. And so uh, what I did there is certainly nothing unusual. There, Two major factors, I think, that uh, pushed it. Uh, first of all, uh, I found it very challenging to ask if molecular thermodynamics can tell us something that would be of use in the biological area. Uh, so far, uh, that's been very limited, but I found that a great challenge. But then beyond that, there are practical things. Uh, if you want to get good graduate students to work with you, you have to have something that's exciting, or that they at least think is exciting. And so uh, my usual topics about uh, oil refinery and poly polyethylene and stuff like that, that wasn't exciting. That was considered old stuff. But uh, if instead of saying, would you like to do with thermodynamics, the answer would usually be no. If I could say, would you like to work in biothermodynamics? Oh, that was fine, you see. So it was student pressure. And then uh, the, the usual one that dictates so much of what we do in research uh, is financial pressure. If you want to get uh, funds from the various sponsoring agencies in Washington, you have to have a topic that is popular, uh, that is considered relevant today. And so uh, that was another force that uh, 
pushed me in that direction. And finally, we started adding biotype people in our department. We, we now have, uh, I think, four professors out of 20 who are bio-oriented. They're professors of bioengineering, you might say. And so associating with them was also an influence. So what, what have you been working on since you moved on to biomolecular engineering? Well, there are two areas. One of them is really not bio, it's more medical. But let me mention the bio one first. Uh, we've been working on biofuels. Uh, we take a, a grass, uh, a rather rough grass called miscanthus, which grows to about uh, oh, six, seven feet high and doesn't require much fertilizer. It grows in wild areas and poor soil, so it isn't worth anything. And we take this miscanthus and we try to make a liquid fuel out of it that you can use in your automobile or in an airplane. And uh, we're not the only ones, of course, who are doing that. There's a huge uh, effort here on campus in biofuels. But the trick is not to do it. That's easy. The trick is to do it cheaply. Uh, any product you make, a biofuel product, has to be competitive with gasoline. And that is hard. Uh, the various steps for taking a grass or some other material like that, an agricultural product, and making a fuel out of it, that's been known for years. That, that, there's nothing really new there. But uh, it's much too expensive. So the problem is how to do it in such a way that uh, you can do it in very large quantities and with low cost. So that's one thing I've been doing. And I don't do this alone. I have colleagues who are also in this area. And we have some uh, students and postdocs who, who are working along with us. The other area is more in the medical line. Uh, I have a former student, uh, Dr. Clay Ratke, who is now a professor here, so he's one of my colleagues. And uh, he and I are old friends by now. We get along extremely well, and we sort of think alike. And Clay has been active for years uh, with contact lenses. He's also a professor here in the optometry school. And we're trying, I'm helping him on this, we're trying to develop a new kind of contact lens. And of course, there are all sorts of problems that come up. Uh, how do you do this? And what do you want this lens to accomplish that the other ones didn't? And uh, so there's a lot of physical chemistry involved. And so that's the other project that I'm working on. And how are those going? Well, they're coming along. Uh, research necessarily is slow, and academia is particularly slow because of all the other things that students have to do and professors have to do, and because of this incredible bureaucracy that I've already mentioned, which has gotten worse and worse every year. So it's not going nearly as fast as I think it could, but yes, we are making uh, progress. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do with the contact lens that you might find interesting, do you ever wear contact lenses? I have, you yes, absolutely. Well, one of the things that we try to do is we, we're worried about salt. You know, there's salt in your tears, and if you have this contact lens on, especially if you have it on too long, water evaporates, but the salt doesn't. And so the salt concentrates in the middle of the eye, and that can cause all sorts of great damage to the cornea. So we want to work on a, on a contact lens that allows the salt to go through the contact lens and then is absorbed at the outer edge by some sort of a sponge. 
and then you would wash that sponge every so often to get the salt out. And we think that uh, that might be a way of preventing people from getting dry eye and uh, other illnesses that come from contact lenses. Also, we'd like to develop a contact lens that you can keep on indefinitely. The way you, you do it now, you have to take it off at night and wash it and so on, which is not bad, but it's a bit of a nuisance. And so uh, that's one of the things we hope to do. But uh, this will not happen tomorrow. Right. Well, that would be great. I mean, it's the last step before surgery, so that's something that would be pretty great if it happened. I just wanted to go back to uh, to your students and to education and to a topic you've um, you've talked about many times and you seem to feel very strongly about, the intellectual isolation of the College of Chemistry at Berkeley. What exactly did you mean by this? Well, by that I mean that we have superb chemists. They're very, very good, and we've had Nobel Prize winners, and in the national ratings, chemistry at Berkeley always rates number one or number two. It's top-notch. We have very, very good people. But uh, they tend to uh, spend their time just talking to each other. Occasionally, they may talk to physicists. Uh, I think that uh, our chemistry and all our science would be much advanced if we learn to speak to people who are not in science, if we learn to talk to political scientists and literature people and artists and so on, because that gives us a much broader perspective. So when I say isolation, that's what I, what I mean. Our chemistry people and our chemical engineers are well known throughout the world. We travel to meetings and we visit other universities and so on, but uh, we always talk to each other. And uh, I think we would do uh, much better if we talk to people who are not like us, who provide us with a certain stimulus. And furthermore, we'd be much happier. Uh, we all have good brains, and we ought to use them and, and, and uh, enjoy our intellectual abilities and not restrict them solely to one uh, narrow area. So that's what I mean by uh, isolation. And... Uh, I've gotten almost nowhere with this. Uh, whenever I mention this to my colleagues, they just nod and say, oh, yes, yes, yes. But uh, nothing really ever happens. <laughs> so is this something that you feel is specific to, to Berkeley, or do you think it's, you know, it's a symptom of our times? Right? It's a symptom of our times, but I think it's uh, particularly bad at Berkeley. And, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's bad in many places. I've been to numerous universities in Europe, and that's even worse. The European professors are very isolated and don't talk to each other. And uh, rather interesting why that is, I mean, obviously many reasons, but one reason that was explained to me by one of the professors, this was in Germany, uh, he said, well, I don't want to talk to other professors because that way I would show my ignorance. You see, I, I don't know enough about the other fellow's area. And so if I talk to him, it's embarrassing for me. And, so. and I certainly found that to be true uh, here also, especially when I uh, try to talk to people. Not, these are not professors now. Just talk to people who are uh, not in the sciences and say, well, why, uh, why are you so uh, antagonistic to science? Why don't you ever want to ask questions about it or want to know something about it? The same answer is given. Well, I'm embarrassed, you see. I... I really don't know anything, and I don't want to show that my ignorance and so on. So it's a, it's a universal problem. People are insecure. Uh, I, I don't have that. 
problem. I mean, I talk to people in all sorts of areas, and of course I don't know much about it, but so what? I ask questions. I say, well, what about this and what about that? What do you mean by this and so forth? And I learn a lot, and I, I don't feel embarrassed. Uh, but anyway, I seem to be unusual in that regard. <laughs> well, you, you certainly compare this to, to the richness of the education you received when you were at Cornell um, as an undergraduate. Um, and so I'm interested in, in, in finding out about the courses that you took and influences that you received when you were, when you were there. Well, there, there are several answers. Let me just give uh, two obvious ones. One is the courses. Uh, I took some very good courses with very good teachers. The teacher is really the important part. Uh, when I was at Princeton, the rule there was, uh, for, for students, don't pick courses. When you're making up your curriculum, don't pick courses, pick instructors. Find out who the professors are, never mind what the subject is. You want to get a good teacher. Well, I hadn't heard that particular advice when I was at Cornell, but I was fortunate in getting some very, very good teachers. So I had a few courses in literature and philosophy that uh, I liked very much. And then most important, I had a two-semester sequence in the history of science. I was taught by a historian, a distinguished historian of science. And interestingly enough, at that time, it's no longer true, at that time, if you were in the engineering college, you had to take this, this was a requirement, two semesters of history of science, and that was a blessing for me. I mean, it just opened up avenues and vistas that I had never seen before. So that's one answer to your question. The other answer to your question is that I chose my friends intentionally from areas outside of my own. Uh, my roommates were never uh, chemists or chemical engineers. My roommates were always in some other, some other area. And uh, my friends of whom I eat dinner and so on, uh, they were also from other areas. And that has been a great boon to me. And I keep trying to convince our students here to do the same, that they should, when they choose their living arrangements or their social events, they should meet other people. Uh, my success there is also pretty limited. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's one of the questions I had for you. What exactly do you tell your students if, if you had to build a case for this and, you know, and how broadening their horizons might inform their work and, and, and their mission in the world as scientists? Uh, what exactly do you tell yeah, them? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, what I tell them is that if they are well-rounded, if they know something other than their own area, uh, then uh, they can make a good case to what they're doing. In other words, they can explain to the public, uh, look, I'm doing such and such, and the reason is because it'll do such and such for society. Uh, so that I think that is a big help. It, it sort of relates what you do to what other people do, helps you to get support, uh, it helps you convince perhaps the, the directors of your company to allow you to do what you want to do, uh, furthermore, it gives you a perspective that you don't have otherwise. In other words, you look at your, your scientific problem quite differently. You look at it not just from a narrow viewpoint of what your predecessor had done, but what other people are doing in other areas. And there's much, much uh, evidence in the history of science to show that a given area, a given discipline, always grows at the periphery. It's what goes on at the boundaries of that area that's important, not what's inside. Uh, let me just give a, a few examples that you're familiar with. Why has medicine today become so much more successful than it was uh, 50 years ago? 
It's not because of much that happened in medicine, it's because of what happened outside of medicine. We now have uh, chemical analytical techniques, uh, chromatographs and so on, and, and nuclear magnetic resonance that can do blood tests that were unheard of 50 years ago. So diagnostics has been tremendously uh, improved by what happened in physics. Uh, also, the CT scan uh, is, is, is not a product of medicine, it's a product of electrical engineering. And again, that has been a tremendous boon in medicine, and so on, and many, many other examples. Uh, so you have to be aware of what's happening outside, and uh, that's why your science, I think, will improve. Now, the other reason is, is a more personal one. I think you'd just be a happier person. Uh, you, know, you can talk to people all walks of life and, and relate to them, and they can relate to you. You could have a more interesting dinner conversation with your wife. Uh, you can use your uh, God-given good brains in a much broader way, and it, I think it's very satisfying to do that. So, so you said you've 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 had a lot of resistance, both from the department and your students, uh, when when you come up to them with with those arguments. What do they tell you? Resistance is perhaps the wrong word. Whenever I mention these things, people don't disagree with me. They say yes. Uh, would be good if we did that, you know, did revise our curriculum accordingly and so on. They all say that. The problem is they never give it enough priority. Uh, everybody's busy, and it's gotten much worse in recent years, especially with these budget crises. So everybody says, oh, yes, 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 we should do that. What you say there, John Prowse, is really very sensible. It's fine. But, excuse me, I have to go to a meeting now. You know, it's, 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 it's not that anybody opposes it. It's not resistance. It's just that uh, there's always something else that has to be done. So what, what do you suggest to kind of go around this problem? Ah, I wish I knew. Uh, I have a very modest uh, suggestion. I have something called uh, the Bernofsky Project. I don't know if the name Bernofsky means anything to you. He was an author oh, about 30 years ago who uh, did a lot to talk about uh, science and the arts. I'm a great admirer of Bernofsky. He had a television series called The Ascent of Man where this was discussed. Anyway, this Bernofsky project is an attempt to uh, bring uh, what you might call humanistic factors into our existing courses. Uh, so the idea is that if a professor of chemistry or engineering talks about some subject, uh, he should take a few minutes, maybe five minutes is enough, to indicate how what he's talking about really matters. You know, how, how has it changed our lives? Well, who really cares about this? And whenever I mention this to uh, my colleagues, they say, oh yes, yes, yes that would be a, you know, that'd be a good idea. But I don't have the material, you know, I, and I can't take time to work this up. So the Bernofsky Project is something I pursued now for a few years where we take applications of chemical technology and show how they really are important to us in our daily lives. And I write up, I don't write it up, I have students who do this. They write up a report of about five pages which elaborates on the subject. And uh, the idea is that these reports, we now have about 50 of them. Uh, these reports will be made available on the internet so anybody can get them. And I hope professors will, will do that. They'd, all they have to do is look at the report and talk about it for a little while. 
Uh, I've certainly done this in my classes whenever I, uh, usually in the middle of the hour when students are beginning to get a little sleepy, when I talk about a, a real life consequence, oh, they wake up, you know, they, they really enjoy that, they want to know more about that. Just to help them realize the kind of impact. Well, we, our students uh, partition their minds. They, they take a course in chemistry or physics or something, and then they're required to take a few, not many, take a few courses in, in the humanities. So when they're, when they're taking a course in chemistry, they open the chemistry valve, and the, chem the chemistry flows in, and then when they go to the history class, they close the chemistry valve and open the history valve, and the history flows in. But it doesn't occur to them the two are connected. They don't see the connection. And the Bronowski project is a very modest attempt to try and do something about that. So that's the only really practical thing I've come up with. Uh, it's just hard to get people to change. Bronowski, as an author, was talking about um, building the bridge between uh, sciences and, and the arts. And um, one of your students, or your former students, rather, is, is, is now the dean of uh, the School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Yes. Um, would you tell me more about him? Yes, I'm, I'm not up to date. I'm not sure that he's still the dean, but as far as I know, he's still at the University of Michigan. Before that, he, was, he had a similar position at, uh, um, at the uh, Mellon University in, uh, in Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon. So he's done a lot of this. Uh, yes, I can tell you a little about him. He, this was many years ago. He was here around 1970. And he was an extremely good student uh, in chemical engineering, obviously very bright. He'd come here from a bachelor's training at Yale, and he'd had some industrial experience in Los Angeles. And uh, he came here, and he realized at Berkeley this was a whole new world. Berkeley was quite different from Yale in those days. And uh, he saw also, this was 1970 at the time of the student rebellions and so on. So he, uh, he had a real change of personality, you might say, and he became involved with some friends in the, in the College of Design, where they have art and architecture, and, and he was particularly interested in sculpture. And so uh, we devised a curriculum for him whereby he would get his joint PhD in chemical engineering and in art. And he made a uh, part of his thesis was he built a sculpture of uh, glass, and he had fluids flowing through this very intricate uh, glass design with pumps to pump the fluids. And he had various uh, little heat exchanges. He didn't cool it because uh, these he had several fluids, and they had different color. And depending on the temperature, the fluids could either be miscible or not. So part of the time, you'd have bubbles, and then the bubbles would disappear. And then later on, they might reappear again. So it was a very, very nice, uh, clever design on his part. That was the last chapter uh, of his thesis. And so we had an exhibit of that sculpture and a few others he had done. We had an exhibit of that in, in Gilman Hall. And uh, this was about 1972 or three, something like that. And somehow that information got out, and this was the only time in my long, long history at Berkeley that the chancellor came to uh, Gilman Hall. I don't think he, a, a chancellor's ever been there before, and certainly none has been there since. But uh, anyway, the chancellor came to see the sculpture, and then the television cameras came, so I had my brief moment on television saying a few things about this. 
And uh, then uh, Brian went to Europe. He went to an art college in, in Munich. And eventually he became a faculty member at uh, San Francisco State University. And then he went to, as I said, to Carnegie Mellon and finally University of Michigan. Well, he's given up his chemical engineering totally, so he went much further than I had ever intended. I don't want people to leave chemical engineering necessarily. But uh, certainly his technical knowledge has greatly influenced his work. Uh, he wouldn't be able to do the kind of work he does without that technical background. So that was really interesting um, to me. That was Brian Rogers, um, yes. for the record, um, because it, it reminded me of a story I heard about a couple of years ago. Um, there was a, a stem cell researcher named Victor Nurkamp uh, who partnered with an artist called Trish Adams, and um, he helped her turn cells taken from her blood into a cluster of cardiac cells. And he was talking about this project, saying that um, it reminded him of how much joy he could find in his work, in experimentation. Um, how do you feel about the idea that art can provide that kind of space for, for science? Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of historical evidence to show that. Uh, one of the most famous examples is uh, a man named Kekulé. This was in the 19th century, who first came up with the structure of benzene. It was very puzzling. Benzene had certain properties that uh, didn't seem to agree with what was thought to be the structure of the benzene molecule. And he saw, uh, I guess it was a, a dream, he saw a painting of a snake biting its own tail. And that suggested to him that maybe benzene was a circular molecule, not a linear, but a circular molecule. And indeed, that's what it is. And then the properties of benzene got right into line with its structure. There are many, 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 many examples of that where, uh, by analogy, you, you see something uh, in art, you see a painting or a sculpture, or you hear some music, and that suggests to you uh, how you might go about solving a problem in science. There's a lot, lots of evidence to this. So uh, I'm a great believer in that. And also, I think it just, uh, it's much more fun that way. I mean, it's not only that science advances, but uh, the joy of living is served. And, and, and you used it very much actively in, in your life. Um, I watched a 2004 session of Lunch Poems here at Berkeley, uh, during which you, you read um, a, a poem by Walt Whitman, another by Rainer Maria Rilke, and one by Sheena Pugh, Welsh um, poet, yes. I believe. It was incredibly moving. So you, you have an interest in literature, in history, in philosophy. So how has all this informed your, your work well, it's informed me in the sense that I feel that uh, much of what I do is of direct use. In other words, it's, it has a connection with society. It's not just something that you write up and then it goes into a library and gathers dust. It's something that is useful and makes for, a, hopefully, a somewhat better world. Uh, that's one level. Uh, the other level is that it enables me in my personal life to relate to people who otherwise I would have difficulty relating to. Uh, I enjoy very much meeting people who are in literature or political science or what have you, and I find I can uh, talk to them and learn something. Of course, I'm not an expert in these areas, but I, I know enough to ask the right question. And the big problem I have, actually, is getting the conversation partner to shut up. I mean, they want to talk indefinitely. But they're always delighted when somebody comes and asks a question. They're more than happy to uh, 
discuss what they're doing, and the problem is to get them to stop. But uh, it's, it's enriched my life, I would say. Uh, has it had a big influence on my work? Uh, uh, it's hard for me to say. I, I don't know. I, I just cannot conceive of, of living in such a way that I would only do chemical engineering. Uh, I always tell my students, there's more to life than chemical engineering. Now go out and do something else. And as, uh, as you know, that is a problem because time is limited and the students work hard and they, uh, they uh, have lots of things to do to satisfy their academic requirements. But what I'm talking about doesn't really take any extra time. I want students, when they have dinner, to stop meeting with other chemical engineers and talk to people who are in the law school or uh, literature school or what do I know, something else. And they have dinner anyway. They have lunch. Uh, they certainly, on weekends, they have outings. They, I don't know what they do. They go to dances or whatever. Uh, why, they should do that with people who are not like themselves. So uh, it's true, it does take some time, but uh, I don't think it takes nearly as much time as people say. And when they say to me, oh, I can't do that, I don't have the time, I think it's a cop-out, it's, it's an excuse. They don't want to make the effort. You see, it's so comfortable to be with people like yourself. It's, it's very, there's no challenge. I see it at the faculty club. The purpose of the faculty club, one of the purposes of the faculty club, was to get professors from different areas together, cross-fertilization and so on. This rarely happens. You find there's a table where the chemists sit, there's a table where the literature people sit, and so on. There's, very, there's some, but there's very little mixing because it's an effort. It's so much easier to sit down with somebody who you know for years and talk about the same thing all the time. So uh, it's human nature not to want to do that. But uh, I think we should. I think it's worthwhile. Also because it, it, it does feel that um, heart sciences like this uh, feel very isolated. They're things that the general public, people who come from the humanities, find extremely intimidating. Is, is this the kind of thing that would help? Absolutely, it would help, certainly. If you talk to people who are not like you, then you learn how to communicate in such a way that other people can understand what you're doing. And uh, I, I have constantly run into this uh, with students. Uh, uh, these are undergraduates mostly. Says, I, I know how, I say to the undergraduates, I, I know how, how you face certain situations. You come home with a vacation and there's grandma and Grandma says, well, here you are at Berkeley. You're taking all these courses. What's, uh, what's this all about? Can you tell me? And then you, the student, reply, oh, Grandma, you wouldn't understand. And everybody chuckles because they all identify with that remark. And my response is, it's not true. Grandma understands a lot more than you think. It's you who doesn't understand because you haven't learned how to say it in such a way that Grandma can follow you. Grandma's not stupid, but you've got to do it in the right way. So do you feel scientists have a duty to communicate? Absolutely. They have a duty to communicate, otherwise uh, it's going to, we're going to have increasing trouble. After all, it's the society that supports us. If they don't support us, then we can't function. And the only way they're going to support us is if we tell them what we're doing and convince them this is really worthwhile. I have one last question which relates to your interest in philosophy and theology. This is a time and a place where God and science seem to be at war. How do you approach this question? Well, I think you're very much mistaken. I don't think that's true at all, at least not in the intellectual areas that I go in. 
Uh, it used to be true, uh, certainly in uh, oh, the 19th century and even before, there was this struggle, Galileo, and it was even earlier. But I don't think it's true today. I think today uh, there's much more sympathy on both sides. Uh, there's much more communication going uh, back and forth. And I think people realize that uh, there are sort of domains where one is dominant and other domains where the other one is dominant, and there's no reason why they can't get along. There's really no reason why there's any uh, struggle between them. The example that we use today, actually people with your point of view use, uh, is intelligent design. And the opposition to intelligent design is really not opposition to the idea of intelligent design. The opposition is that somehow people who believe in intelligent design think it's science. That's the problem. Uh, it's not science. It's, it's belief. And if people want to believe that, uh, there's really no harm, and scientists really don't see any danger in it. It's when the people who believe this passionately claim it's science, then we get upset. It's not science. But if you accept it for what it is, then I don't think there's uh, any problem. There's also a very a growing belief, uh, I shouldn't say growing belief, a growing acceptance of results that we get from neuroscientists about just how people function, how people work. Uh, there's a new book out by uh, David Brooks that you may have seen, uh, came out recently, which pushes this. But his book is not the only one. And that is that emotions and, and feelings play a much greater role than we think. Uh, we like to think that we're rational beings and that we uh, decide everything in a rational way. But research shows that's absolutely not true. We decide things on an emotional way. And then after that, we rationalize. We think up rational reasons as to why we made this decision. But in many uh, essential everyday decisions, uh, it's really our emotions that, uh, that, that govern us. And so where does that come from? Where do these emotions come from? Well, there's some power in the world that we don't really quite understand. And I think it was William James who said that religion really is the uh, acceptance that there are powers in the world that are beyond our understanding and that it would be wise for us to be uh, uh, in harmony with these powers. Well, if you define religion that way, then... So I don't see any problem. Professor John Prosnitz, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spread my ideas. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Review's audio for over 75 years. Annual Review's guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening. Thank you.